Hi, I'm Joel McMahon, pastor at San Philip United Methodist Church. I'd like to welcome you to our latest podcast. And as we get started, let's bow our heads for a time of prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this time that we have together. And we thank you that we have it not just with each other, but also with you. And we pray, Lord, that as we uh, hear your word and as we uh, delve into it today, that you will reveal things to our hearts and uh, just draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray especially for those who are listening today who are homebound, uh, those who are ill, those who are going through different things in their lives. Lord, those that face challenges in their lives, be them economic, be them physical, be them health-wise, whatever their need is, Lord God, I pray that you just meet them just right at their point of need as they open their hearts up to you and ask you to help them. Lord, you've told us in your word that we have not because we ask not, and so we ask for your help in different areas of our life right now. And especially now, we ask for your help in understanding your word. As we gather now, in Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series called Jesus Unfiltered. And in this series, we've been looking at a lot of different uh, passages that people have trouble with, uh, passages that people have just taken their preconceptions to and uh, their assumptions to instead of really trying to understand what Jesus is saying. And the passage that we're looking at today is found in Luke, the 14th chapter, the 26th verse. And there our Lord says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the way that people handle this particular passage is many times they'll just look at it and they'll think, this just doesn't compute. And they'll just skip over it and just keep on going instead of really trying to understand. And so that's what I want us to do today is to really understand what the Lord is saying here. You know, a lot of people, their first reaction to this verse is to think it can't possibly be something Jesus said because it seems to contradict what we've been taught elsewhere in the scripture. After all, aren't we taught to honor our fathers and mothers? And aren't we told to love our wives? Aren't we told to love our neighbors and even our enemies? You know, that's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet here he tells us we need to hate our fathers mothers, children, brothers, and sisters, and even ourselves? Well, before we wrongly conclude that Jesus is somehow contradicting what we find elsewhere in the Word of God, let's consider what Jesus said here in context. And uh, to, in order to do this, I'd like to read to you from Luke, the 14th chapter, and uh, I'd like to go ahead and uh, read not just the one verse, but I want to start with verse 26. And uh, as uh, we're reading through this, I want you to listen and hear if you uh, hear, listen for a phrase 
See if there's a phrase that's repeated in this passage in Luke, the 14th chapter, beginning with the uh, 26th verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when, we is, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, did you hear a phrase repeated there? There is a common phrase Jesus uses in verse 26, 27, and 33. And here it is. He cannot be my disciple. So the overall purpose of Jesus here is to convey what is required to become Jesus' disciple. And so Jesus is primarily speaking here of what it takes to become a disciple. He's addressing the mindset that is required at the outset in order to become a disciple. He's not describing here something we must do in order to continue to be a disciple. And let me stop here and mention that a lot of people like to draw a distinction between salvation and being a disciple. If you look, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus doesn't make that distinction. And the main place that we see it is in the Great Commission when he tells us to go and make what? Followers? No, he tells us to make disciples. And yes, that's a, that's a kind of follower, but it's a committed follower, as we're going to see. In this passage, Jesus gives us three conditions for becoming a disciple of Jesus. First, hate your family. Next, hate your own life. And then lastly, take up your cross, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Uh, first, in order to grasp what Jesus is communicating here, we need to understand what he means by the word hate. You see, Jesus at this point in time is a Jew speaking to Jews whose concept of hate is a Hebrew understanding of hate, an Old Testament understanding of hate. And the Old Testament idea of hate is different from our current understanding that involves anger or emotion or offense. It is instead more about separation or exclusion or putting one ahead of the other. And we see this consistently in the Old Testament where hate is manifested by separating oneself from entangling relationships or circumstances 
rather than by some emotional reaction. Sometimes it's translated as unloved. In Deuteronomy, it mentions a situation where a man has two wives. Uh, one is loved and the other is unloved. And that is the man puts one wife on a pedestal, but not the other. Nothing odious or bitter. One is just valued and chosen over the other. And this is confirmed in Matthew's parallel account of uh, Jesus' words uh, here in Luke 14. Uh, in Matthew, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now Jesus makes it clear that he is like a sword in the sense that he has come to bring separation. And that's what a sword does. It separates. And when he goes on to explain that to become his disciple, family relationships cannot be more important than one's relationship with him. So you see, anytime uh, there's a conflict, you choose Jesus. So what Jesus says here doesn't contradict scripture at all. It actually embraces the rest of scripture. Jesus is actually upholding the importance of scripture here. He is saying that if uh, anything else, even your own family or your own personal interests and desires might cause you or provide justification for you to rebel against what God has taught in his word and what you know what God wants from you, you need to refuse to be drawn away from God. You need to choose God. You need to hate those alternatives to God by separating yourself from them. In other words, don't let anything prevent you from following Jesus, from becoming a disciple of the one who is greater than all these things. Now, there's a phenomenon in our society today that makes it very difficult for people to understand what Jesus is calling us to do today. Many believe that it would comes to character or compromise, uh, nowadays you always cast aside character and compromise your values. Now let me tell you, this is one of Satan's sneakiest ploys, uh, is to bring us to a point where we compromise our values. Uh, this is something I've seen it over and over and over again. You remember uh, Jesus says that the thief comes to but kill and steal and destroy. And this is one of the sneakiest ways that Satan wants to do this. And sometimes it'll be people that you love that will bring you to a place where you have to choose in compromising your values, values you know that were given you by God, or you have to say no and stay with God. And the thing is, once you compromise your values, then 
the next thing that happens, you're being called to compromise your values again. And it goes on and on. This is how pedophiles prey on children. They get them to compromise their values bit by bit. They don't just come in and attack a child. They get them to compromise their values. This is the way that it works so many times. It's, it's happened in our society so much that we, we can hardly look back and see where we've come from. And it's the same thing with uh, uh, people, our friends, our family, calling on us, choose this with us. God doesn't care. Things like that. You compromise, you compromise, you compromise, and the next thing you know, you are far, far from God. Now, I think Rick Warren summed this uh, popular attitude up pretty well in these words. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Now you see, whenever there's conflict between what others want from you or what you want for them or what you want for yourself, a disciple chooses what the Lord wants. He trumps all. I experienced this in my own family when I became a disciple of Christ and began to resist uh, uh, my family in areas where they were wanting me to follow values that went contrary to what God had in store for me. Following the Lord is going to bring division if your family is not following him. It's not that you write them off. It's that you don't give in and you're not pulled away from by them. The same can be said of friends. Friends who want to still be your friend and who love you will be trying to get you to join in with those things that go against what you know God wants for your life. And I think the most tragic place I've seen this through the years is when a young person who is a Christian falls in love with someone who is not. And whenever I talk to them about the dangers of being unequally yoked, which is made very clear in the Bible, and we're told we need to avoid it, they nearly always rationalize. And the young lady in particular, uh, she's found this bad boy that she just really loves, and they, she just rationalizes that they're sure that they're going to be able to become a Christian in time. I'm just going to, maybe God wants me to just love him into the kingdom. That hardly ever happens. I remember one time when it did, and the, whenever I was talking with this couple about it, she was a devout and lovely Christian, and uh, he was not. And uh, he was open about it. And as she thought about this, she got in touch with him, and she said, I can't marry you because we'd be unequally yoked. I want to have a life partner that I can go through life with, serving the Lord together with them. And that's not going to happen with you. I love you. 
and I'm sorry. Well, this cut him to the quick, and it woke him up, and it caused him to do some self-examination, and in time, he became a Christian, and they got engaged again, and they got married, and now then they're serving the Lord together. Oh, uh, the thing is, what the Lord is demanding of us here isn't really radical or extreme. It's a matter of true liberating faith in the power and care of God. He cares for you. It's believing from the bottom of your heart that he has the best possible life for you, a life better than you could ever imagine. And let me tell you, I have put this to the test in my own life, and it is true. You can't outgive God. You give him your life, and he will give you one a lot better. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is not merely adding something to our lives. It's not an invitation to merely make over one or more areas of our lives. It's not a call to just move up a little higher on the ladder, ladder of spiritual life. It's not just getting one foot in the door of the kingdom with the idea of hanging around long enough to become a better person. This is what it is. It is a total commitment to make Jesus the number one priority in your life. Ahead of family, ahead of any material possessions, and ahead, and even ahead of your own life. Many times you will have your own hopes and dreams and aspirations in life, and you will discover that they are contrary to what God wants you. Or maybe you're trying to uh, reach a certain goal so hard that you may be tempted to discard your allegiance to the Lord in order to attain your goal. This is where it all comes in. This is where he's talking about uh, hating your own life. You've got to put him first, trusting that he has the best in store for you. It's a commitment to let Jesus rule in every area of your life. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. That's what it means. And as I said, you can't outgive him. And the life that he has is better. It may not be your plan, but his plan is better. I can remember back when I was in the world and I was just uh, up and coming and uh, there was one man that I had to work with, a client that I had to work with for a while. And uh, he was where I wanted to be. He lived in the neighborhood I wanted to live in. He had the lifestyle I wanted to have, and he was my goal. And I watched him lose his multi-million dollar business. I watched him lose his 16-year-old son to an overdose on heroin. I watched the ground figuratively just cave in under him. And I was thinking, when I get to where this man is, I'm going to be somebody, and I will be set. And I saw 
he had to start over. And he was, had to start over in pain. And I saw that there's nothing that's sure in this world. And then whenever I found the Lord, I discovered, yes, there is something sure in this world, and it is him. The Lord called me into the ministry after that. And at the time, my wife and I, our combined income was the equivalent of, and we were in our 20s. Uh, uh, the equipment was equivalent to that of the av of an average doctor back then. And we had to chuck everything to follow him. And we wound up being in a place where we were just P-O-R-E poor. I mean, we had nothing. And we had to scrape to get by. And, uh, uh, and, and I'm not going to say it was easy but it was character building and the Lord provided. We didn't get everything we wanted, but we had all that we needed as he brought us through and uh, brought us through uh, seminary and through churches and, and brought us to a point where when I finally retired, I'm sitting here right now in a study in a home that is much better than the one that that man had that I wanted to be like because God has blessed us. God has blessed. We gave everything to him and he has blessed us with more than we could ever imagine. Now we know from verse 25 that Jesus spoke these words during the height of his popularity. Luke records that great crowds were following Jesus at this time. But you see, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that most of these people were following him around because of what they hoped to get from him. Uh, he knew that very few of them really were ready to make the kind of commitment that he was calling for here. And so he uses these two short parables that we read to impress upon the people the need to carefully consider all the ramifications of this kind of commitment before they proceeded to make it. The first was the example of someone who decided to build a tower, and Jesus pointed out that it would be embarrassing not to finish the tower because the person hadn't first considered the cost required to bring the project to completion. The second example was that of a king getting ready to go to war. And the king would be foolish not to consider whether he had the ability to succeed before sending his troops into battle. Now with both examples, Jesus is urging his followers to consider all aspects of what they're getting into before they pledge to become his disciples. He wants them to consider the costs and make sure they are willing to incur those costs so that they will be able to complete their journey as his disciples. He doesn't want them to make a decision in a moment of intense emotion without much thought for what that decision will require. And let me tell you, uh, your commitment will be tested. Shortly after we got to uh, Dallas and I was uh, uh, getting. I was starting to getting ready to go to seminary, and we had no money. And I was working at a 7-Eleven. Uh, all of a sudden, a guy comes in, 
there's nobody else there in the store and this guy looks around and he says hey why don't you and I split what's in the cash register and tell them you got robbed and you know it was like I was looking into the very eyes of the devil I was at a point to where I was concerned about how I was going to be feeding my family, whether we were going to have enough money to make it through the week. And here, this guy comes in, just the embodiment of Satan, tempting me. And I had to just tell him, I'm sorry. That wouldn't be very pleasing to the Lord. And I can't do that. And he was very puzzled, but he left. He didn't want to get in trouble by continuing to push things further. So you see, Jesus is not calling people to become his followers here, especially fair time followers. He, has, he had lots of followers already. And he's not asking them to merely uh, pray a prayer or ask him into their hearts. He's not asking people to receive him or have a personal relationship with him. He's asking them to commit to being his disciples. And that's what he has always asked of those who become his disciples is that deep commitment. Now, you see, well, most recently, my wife and I have seen the fallout of not counting the cost in connection with some of our friends whose children have chosen an alternative lifestyle. Instead of holding fast to God's word on homosexuality and loving their children in spite of their sin, they've stepped over and rationalized and uh, put on filters when it comes to scripture and become advocates of this lifestyle and started trying to convince people that God's word doesn't say what God's word says. You see, their love for their children has pulled them away from the Lord. They've chosen their children over the Lord, and now Satan is using them to pull others away. They didn't heed these words. They love their children more, and my heart grieves for them. And I pray for them. What Jesus warns us of here is a clear and present danger for all of us to take to heart in our walk with him. And so uh, I just uh, want to uh, just to go on and, and, and tell you that in discussing all of this, being a disciple is not a matter of just uh, a makeover in a part of your life, in an area of your life. It is a matter of surrender. Jesus' words here are not a call for his disciples to work hard, harder or try to be a better Christian. He's not calling on his disciples to merely take his teachings and use them to make over several areas or various areas of their life. Even those who are not his disciples to that there are a lot of people in our culture who believe that Jesus was a good teacher and they love his teachings and they try to apply the things that he taught to their lives. 
but they don't become his disciples just because they do that. What Jesus is looking for in a disciple is a person who has a mindset in which he or she is willing to let Jesus have every area of their life, where every area is yielded. It's a surrender, and it's a joyful surrender. He's looking for people who are willing to make him their number one priority and are willing to follow, serve, and proclaim him in spite of what others may think of them, in spite of any inconvenience or discomfort they might face, and in spite of any financial harm they may fear they might suffer. Jesus isn't looking for those who can do that perfectly, since no one is capable of that. But he is looking for those with a heart that desires to live like that. And so I just want to uh, encourage you also, avoid the tendency of peddling cheap grace. When we're telling others about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we owe it to them to give them the whole story. We need to make sure that they understand the cost of becoming a disciple. We aren't going, well, we're not doing them any favors at all by trying to make salvation and discipleship merely a momentary emotional experience or by trying to sell what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Uh, 66 years ago, Billy Graham pretty well summed up what I'm trying to get across to you today when he, well, he did it with these words. No matter or nowhere in the New Testament do I find that Christians are expected to be easy, popular, comfortable, and successful in the eyes of this age. The servant is not better than his Lord, and Christ was despised. In many parts of the world today, it still means suffering to become a Christian. When you become a Christian in some areas of the world today, it means that you are thrown out from your family and home and friends. It means you become a spectacle of the world. He invited us not to a picnic, but to a pilgrimage. Not to a frolic, but to a fight. He offered us not an excursion, but an execution. He said that we would have to realize death to self, sin, and the world. Salvation is free but discipleship costs everything we have. Never has the devil been in greater control than today. Christians are a foreign influence in a minority group in a heathen world. You are a Christian if you have received Christ, but you have not been living a fully committed, surrendered life to Christ if you have no scars of the conflict or battle. And I beg of you to surrender your personality to Christ and be ready, if necessary, to bear his reproach without the camp and suffer and die, if necessary, to live this Christian life. Sometimes it is easy to die for Christ, but it's difficult to live for Christ. God wants men and women today that will live the Christian life and in living the life 
you may find that you will have scars. As I thought about this, these words of Billy Graham today and about having scars, I realized, just looking at my hands, they're covered with scars. I have many scars. Some you can see. Some are on the outside, some are on the skin. There are other scars that I bear that you cannot see because of things I have been through. And at this point, everyone is a reminder of a life well lived. Most are connected with me attempting to provide for my family in some way and are reminders of acts of love in the past. Others are reminders of the cruelty that you can experience from others. But you see, for me, even those scars have become badges of love and honor as I have turned to the Lord with them and learned to forgive those who have hurt me and to love them in spite of themselves. You see, being his disciple doesn't make you mean and hateful as you put your love for him above all else. It just helps you to love more. In addition to all this, Jesus gives us this promise that we can count on. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding us to be faithful when it gets tough. And Lord, there are some who are listening who they haven't been faithful and they realize now that every time uh, the temptation uh, has arisen to serve family or friends uh, in, in what seem to be good ways that compromise their values with you, they realize now that they have never really started living as a Christian, that they haven't been living the committed life that you've called them to. Lord, I pray for them especially that you would remind them that you are the one who paid the price for sin on the cross so that you could offer us a new life, that you came to free us from our past so we can live with you in the present and look forward to a future with you forever. And so, Father, I pray that you will call these to just begin again with you. And let's just all pray right now. Father, uh, from this point on, I want to live a life that's committed to you. Lord Jesus, I've heard these words today, and now they make sense. I'm sorry I haven't been following them, but from now on, I'm yours, and I'm going to follow them. Here I am. I commit to you. 
everything I am, everything I've got. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you'll just use me. And I thank you that I know you're going to use me because you created me and you have a life in store for me. I receive that life now that you have for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, everyone that prayed that prayer, I pray that you'll just visit them with the presence of your Holy Spirit today and just seal your promise in their hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope that you'll be with us again next week. Until then, goodbye and God bless.